0: Good morning, it's good to be with you. I'm just going to move a few things around here so that we can all hear each other okay. I bring you greetings from Maple Avenue Baptist Church in Georgetown. It is good to be with you. Um, Our church has had knowledge of you and uh, knowledge of your pastor for some time. I've attended school with Peter. uh, Just last year we had a, a class together, so that was kind of fun. And I just want to say this in starting. Um, it's really neat to know, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, that truly a pastor loves a church, uh, and I can say that to be true of Peter, um, just as he was even considering a time of uh, consideration here. Uh, he and I were talking really specifically about some of those things, and so just knowing what a what a unique opportunity and responsibility that would be, uh, and that was not lost on him. And to hear his love for you grow. Over his time here, something that um, I'm sure he's communicated to you in different ways, but I think it's always helpful to hear it from someone else, and I know that to be true, so I want to say that to you. It's also nice to see familiar faces from different, uh, different walks of life. Uh, I have a former hockey coach here, and uh, my mom's here visiting, and uh, other friends from other places, so it's, it's nice to see so many familiar faces as we go into God's Word together and we ask His Spirit to be at work in our hearts. So I would, if you haven't uh, kept your Bible open, if you could open it now to Luke chapter 15. So if you're in the New Testament, you want to go Matthew, Mark, Luke. It'll be the third, third book in the New Testament. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. We're actually going to look at the entire chapter this morning, but we're going to be walking through it in a, in a fairly quick manner. So it'll be helpful if you keep your Bibles open, whether that's uh, on paper or on a screen. Uh, whatever, whatever suits you, that will do for us this morning. Isn't it the case that when we lose something, we are invariably fa- invariably happy when we have found it? Uh, it could be something small, maybe like a, a receipt that you're looking for. You wanted to return that thing to the store, or a mitten, or a sock, or a Tupperware lid. I think somewhere in this world there is a giant vat of socks and Tupperware lids. There, there's somewhere it exists. I know, it is a treasure trove. Maybe something a little more important. Maybe you've misplaced your keys uh, or your purse. Something like that. Your, your intensity for looking for those things is going to go up. Now maybe, now that we live in this technological age, uh, the world stops if you have misplaced your what? Your phone. You can't find that. No one's going anywhere. Right? We are invariably happy when we find the things that we are looking for. There's a bit of a sick feeling in our stomach too if we ever feel like we may have lost something that is of great importance, of invaluable importance worth we were transferring all of our data i say we the royal we it was me transferring all of our data from our old computer to our new one now this had all of our family pictures uh wedding pictures pictures of uh our kids learning to walk and talk everything i was transferring all this data from the old computer to the new computer and i i did it right it was all done well until i went to go find some pictures I went to go look, and I couldn't find the folder. Where was it? It wasn't there. Well, it must be somewhere else. So I click through and click through and click through some more, and then, you know, that, that anticipation begins to rise. You start to begin to feel a little bit of stress. Now, where is it? And then you start to get that bit of a cold feeling come over you, like, oh, no, I don't think it's here. Oh, no, I don't have the other computer anymore. What have I done? I remember telling... Telling Barbara, my wife, saying, I, I think I've deleted, I think I've deleted everything. Like, I think it's all gone. Uh, to be honest with you, we both grieved the reality that that might have happened. Um, it was a sickening feeling. I spent pretty much the next three days, every spare moment I had, clicking through, doing advanced searches, Googling things, trying to figure out, is there some way that this stuff exists that I could have maybe have deleted, could bring it back, all the rest, nothing. My kids, I remember even coming into my office and seeing me, saying, like, what's wrong? It was clear. I ended up telling some family and friends this is what happened, just asking that they would pray for me as I looked for these things, that I would have (laughs) peace and perseverance, because I needed those two things in spades. Well, after a a lengthy search over three days, uh, I happened to click inside of a folder, inside of a folder that was inside of a folder that had this long string of numbers and letters that made absolutely no sense to me. And there was everything. Whew. You know, that's one of those moments when, when you don't say glibly, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it is there. I remember running through the house, telling, just you, I found it, I found it. We celebrated, the kids came together. We all celebrated. I told friends and family what I had found. And they celebrated my find. You see, those who are with us, those who know The extent of what has been lost, they are invariably happy. They are thrilled. They rejoice with you when it has been found. See, it is fitting when those who are with you celebrate the things that you have lost. Our passage today, Luke 15, speaks of three things that have been lost and were found. And now all of these things, they didn't just suddenly appear. No, they were either sought out or the return was hoped for. And when they were found, the celebrations weren't a solo experience. It wasn't me just celebrating in my office alone. No, the celebrations, they were shared. And on the day that the good news came, when the shepherd was returned with his sheep, when the woman had been reunited with her coin, and the father with his son, preparations were made, and celebrations were had. Now, while our minds might initially go to the value of the thing that was lost, the sheep The coin or the sun. We're going to see today that these three things actually act as a vehicle that expose the nature of our heart, the nature of the heart of those who would either celebrate with Almighty God or hold their tongue, or maybe even worse, scowl. The main question that we're going to be answering this morning is this What should the outpouring of our heart look like when that which is lost becomes found? These three parables, which are actually one parable, look back to uh, verse 3. It says, so he told them this. It's a singular parable. And then he proceeds to tell them three stories. So I'll speak of it as three parables, but understand that they're one. They're intended to be one package together. But to understand these, it's important to grasp the context in which these three parables are being shared. Look back to verse 1 with me of chapter 15. It says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. You see, the presence of Jesus had drawn a mixed crowd. Part of the crowd were the Pharisees and the scribes, the the teachers of the law. These men would have been ones held in high esteem, both by others, but maybe more tellingly, by themselves. These Jews knew the law. They knew the law on the law. They knew what God wanted. They were the righteous ones, after all. But as the verse tells us, there was another group of people drawn to Jesus as well. They were the tax collectors and the sinners. They were Jews as well, but these weren't the righteous ones. These weren't the ones who kept the law or knew the law or knew the law on the law. In fact, the tax collectors were the ones that had sold out to Rome and were known to steal from their own people. The sinners, what a lovely name for a group of people, isn't it? Were likely made of those less desirable parts of a population. Thieves, prostitutes, the unclean, the poor. This group had no social standing or religious right. And yet when Jesus sat, they clamored to be next to him. And Jesus didn't drive them away. After all, as we'll see, these were some of the faces of the loss that our text alludes to in metaphor. And being lost is is that which is on full display in this section of Luke. The only hope one has when one is lost is that one might be found. In fact, this emphasis is underscored by the fact that the word lost is used just as the word found. In this context, Jesus is making it very clear for us that as we think of these two terms, that we should marry them. That when we hear of the thing that is lost, we should also think of that which became found. Now, the use of these words uh, aren't accidental. The weight of these words shouldn't also be lost on us today. In fact, the very foundation of Christian theology is wrapped up in our being lost and being found by God in Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, even if you're a newer Christian, and even if you maybe struggle with some of the more complex doctrines of the Christian faith, you will be able to, with clarity, declare, just as the familiar hymn does, that you once were lost, and you now are found. In fact, as you declare this truth, you will do so with joy because the old shame attached to your sin is no longer your own but is instead assumed by Christ. In this reality, you know that you have life free from guilt and condemnation. And so you can breathe deep and long and have life free from guilt and condemnation because you now rejoice in this new reality. This reality is the most basic explanation of the gospel. So please, if you are here today and you did not know that this is the foundational truth of the Christian faith, know it now, that unless you repent of your sin, unless you claim Christ as your Lord, you will remain separate from God, lost in your sin. And you remain so unless you place your faith in Christ. But in Christ's sinless life, in his sacrificial death, in his God-powered bodily resurrection, and his alone you can be found. And make no mistake, seeking and saving those who are lost is why Jesus came from heaven to earth. Later on in Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So please, regardless of your state here today... Hear this teaching of Christ that we are going to explore and allow it to shape the way that you would see your own soul this morning. Now, because what we have before us is a text and not an audio recording, we are left to guess the tone of things, the way things are said. Now, if you uh, are married or maybe have some other close relationships, you will know that issues often arise, not necessarily always with what you say, but the tone with which you say it. Uh, now, we're, we're forced to guess at the tone here, but I think much of what we are going to hear said is going to allow us very easily to understand the tone with which it might have been said and the great weight with which the original hearers would have had to take it. Now, remember, we have with us here this morning the self-proclaimed heirs of the promise and the sinners present with Jesus as he speaks his lost and found triad of parables. The first two, the two that we had read for us this morning, share the same formula. Something of value is lost, and the owner goes to find it. In the case of the shepherd, one of his sheep wanders away. And because the shepherd knows his sheep, and because the shepherd loves his sheep, this shepherd knows that Fluffy is missing. And because the shepherd not only knows his sheep but loves his sheep, he leaves the other 99 in the open field and he goes to find the one that is lost. Now the pragmatic side of our 21st century minds might question the wisdom in leaving the other 99 in the open country to find one. Aren't the other 99 important? What happens to them when the shepherd goes to find the one? Asking these questions actually misses the point that the other 99 are not lost. They are already in the care of the shepherd. That's it, nothing more, nothing less. They are already in the care of the shepherd. The 99 sheep are not lost and the one, Fluffy, is. And because the shepherd is a good shepherd and one that loves his sheep, and he desires not to lose any of them, he leaves the other 99 and he goes to seek the one. Now here's the interesting part of this first section of parables. Uh, I don't know if you can remember a time when you were a child. Uh, maybe you were out with your parents, uh, maybe in a, a large department store, something like Sears or the Bay, you know, these big ones with lots of turnstiles of clothes. My mom's here today, so I remember doing this to her. Uh, I remember finding a, a, a rack of clothes and hiding inside of it and listening to her walk around, listening, Joshua, where are you, Joshua? And it was, it was quite humorous to me. Uh, I appreciate now that it's not so humorous as a parent. Uh, My wife and I, we were in San Antonio, Texas. It was about eight years ago now. We only had two children at the time. Catherine was two, and Olivia was still in a stroller being pushed. We had man-on-man coverage for this one. (laughs) Barb was pushing Olivia in the stroller, and all I had to do, my my one job, follow Catherine. That's it. We're in this museum of play. It was this cool place. Lots of hallways and things that kids could do, try on, and and have a great time. There's three floors to this place. so It was quite large. And, you know, we, we allow our kids some, some space to roam. And I knew, well, she kind of went around a corner. So that's fine. She's just playing. And I kind of sauntered around. It was a busy place. And I didn't see Catherine. Where was she? Well, she must be around the next corner. Went around the next corner. Catherine wasn't there either. I went around a few more corners. And Catherine still wasn't there. And I, you know, finally, I realized I needed to go back to Barb and say, you know that one job I had of, uh, of watching Catherine? Yeah, I, I kind of messed up on that one. I, I don't know where our daughter is. Well, I figured it's a, it's a closed-circuit place. You know, you can't, these things are on lockdown. You can't get out. Catherine's got to be here somewhere. So we split up, and we start looking for her. Can't find her. A couple minutes later, still can't find her. My pace is picking up. My Canadian calm is now beginning to erode quite quickly. And I'm, Catherine, Catherine, where are you? Lots of noise here. Five minutes have passed, can't find her. I've done two loops of this entire place, and I can't find her anywhere. By this point, I've now grabbed somebody who works there. and said, this is my daughter. This is how old she is. This is what she looks like. Uh, I can't find her. She's missing. Staff get involved. Another five minutes passed. Ten minutes is now gone, which, of course, goes really quickly, but in those moments feels like an eternity to you as a parent. My daughter's gone. I don't know where she is. We get near the front of, of this facility where people would leave, and I think maybe she's gone outside. And as I'm standing there, uh, one of the workers in the shirts of the people that work there walk, and they have little Catherine in hand walking towards me. She had somehow managed her way to the back of the building, gone on a staff elevator, and was walk- going up and down, just hitting buttons. She came back, no, no worse for wear, not knowing what really had happened, but of course, as a parent... You want to, at that moment, both hug and love your child and strangle them all at the same time. I love you, but don't you ever do that again. You are thrilled, but you are terrified at what has just happened. And that is a normal parental response. But look back to verse 5 with me. Look back to verse 5. When the shepherd finds his lost sheep. Look there. It says this. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. You see, the shepherd expresses no anger and he offers no sharp rebuke. He doesn't beat the sheep for wandering off. He doesn't chain the sheep to a post so it won't wander away again. He just picks it up and he places it on his shoulder so it can be reunited with the flock under the shepherd's care. And he celebrates that his lost sheep is now found. And this is the image that God provides his people with through the prophet Isaiah of himself. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11, he writes... He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, protected close and under his care. Now the actions of the woman in the second parable are the same. She's lost a coin, something of value. And the statement concerning her actions is posed as the obvious question with the obvious tone. Look to verse 8 with me. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The answer to this rhetorical question, of course, is built within the question itself. If you lose something of value, finding it is of paramount importance. And when that's happened, when we've lost something and we don't know where it is, we go back to the place that we think we may have lost it. And if it's your house... You begin cleaning when you haven't found it the first time. I know we've gone through more than one room or more than one desk drawer that's gotten cleaned a few times because that's been the the case. We do this because what we've lost is of value. And when that which is lost becomes found... We celebrate. There's high fives, there's uh, Facebook posts with a smiley face emojis, there's text messages going back and forth. We call together the people that know us and that, ce- that love the things that we love, and they share in our celebration. We call out, come with me, my joy is great, celebrate with me. To drive this home, look look at verse 6, and we'll see how this happens in both. Look at verse 6, it says, of the shepherd, it says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Look down to verse 9. And when she, the woman, has found it, the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Now notice that the, the extent of the celebration seems to supersede the thing that was lost. I mean, it was just one sheep. There was ninety-nine others. It was just one coin. There was nine others. Why such need for celebration? Well, remember that a parable is a story that is telling us something that is true, but it isn't true itself. It's a made-up story that's intended to communicate a bigger truth. And Jesus uses a parable here to do just that. You see, in both instances, what the lost sheep and the lost coin represent it's, is clear. They represent the sinner who is lost in their sin, but then found through repentance. They are apart from God, but reunited through, with him through contrition. Uh, we know that because Jesus actually makes the connection for us in verses 7 and 10. Look to verse 7 again with me. Just so, meaning just like the sheep that was found, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And again in verse 10, look there. Just so, meaning just like the coin that was found. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Yes, there is joy over a lost sheep and coin that have been found. Oh, but when a sinner repents, heaven explodes with joy. Uh, Christian, when you confessed your sin and placed your trust in Christ, angels cheered. We're told that the angels of God get in on the joy expressed when a sinner looks to Almighty God and confesses their need for forgiveness. Just as the friends of the shepherd and the woman celebrated with their friends, so too do the angels of God when a sinner turns from their sin and turns towards Almighty God. Now at this point you might rightly be asking, but I thought it said that there were 99 righteous persons that don't need to repent. Uh, the same inference can be gleaned uh, from the one sinner who represents is represented in verse ten, as we talk about the coins. So, how does that work? Doesn't everyone need to repent? Who isn't in need of repentance? To this, to answer this question, we're going to look at the third parable, and with that, we're going to pull everything together. Now, the third parable you might think is quite the same as the other two. But as we're going to see, the parable of the prodigal son as it's most commonly known actually contrasts the two parables that come before it. While it in greater detail exposes the heart of the lost person contrite before God, it also acts as a warning to those who may think they are with God but in reality have strayed and are really out more for their own glory. An obvious question is, Why would someone not be happy when a sinner repents and turns to Jesus? It sounds so strange, and yet you and I are capable of muting the joy we ought to express. Oh, it may not be as blatant as what we are about to see, but poisonous subtleties are no less deadly. When our own glory holds a place in our heart the heart change of others will go unnoticed. Let me say that a little bit differently. When the heart change of others goes uncelebrated, it is not the glory of God that has prominence in our own heart. In this scene, in this third section, the scene depicts a father with two sons. It's likely most of us are familiar with this parable. The younger son, the one with whom no honor would have traditionally been given to in terms of being next head of the family, decides that whatever cut he's going to get of his father's wealth, he wants it, and he wants to get out, and he wants it now. The younger son wants to throw off the authority of his father and do his own thing, go his own way. Jesus doesn't paint much of a picture for us concerning the back and forth that the younger son would have had with his father. But you can imagine, A, how brazen an act of the younger son this would have been, and B, how hurtful to the father. This might have been. Younger son says, I don't want to wait until you're dead to get what's coming to me, Dad. Be dead to me now and give me what's mine. And as parents must inevitably do at some point, this father lets his son go. In this case, culturally, with the inheritance he one day otherwise would have rightfully received. And of course, the younger son, being of such noble character, made only good choices with his newfound fortune. Sadly, no. Look back to verse 13 with me. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. So not only does the younger son insult his father by demanding his cut from his father's estate, but he takes his privilege he's been given and he squanders it on trite consumables and fair-weather friends. For someone Who is as self consumed as this younger son must have been, it's not hard to imagine what those things might have been and with what ease he might have found them. In verse 14, we're told that there's a famine in this distant land that he had traveled to. Out of money and nowhere to go, the younger son stoops to the lowest of lows and works as the keeper of pigs. What an abhorrent image to a first century Jew. So hungry was he that he longed to eat the pods of food that he was giving to the pigs. The uncleanliness of the younger son's heart was now being manifested in the role of caring for the most unclean of animals and his most unclean of desires. But the thought comes to him, my father is good. Maybe he'll take me back if even as a servant. Look to verse 17 with me. It says this. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so the speech has been prepared. If I'm lucky, he'll take me in. If he does, I live. If he doesn't, I die. The story goes on to speak of the son's return. Look back to verse 20 with me. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Just like the shepherd with his sheep, the woman with her coin, when that which was lost, not only does the one who had lost celebrate, But joy exudes from those who were supporting the one who had known the loss in the first place. You see, we celebrate when the loss is recovered. It is a fitting thing to do. Now, how do the hearers of Jesus' parables hear this? Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law hear that the younger son had thrown off tradition and brought shame upon his house. They learned that he lived a sinful, self-indulgent life they know that he's worked with pigs and is unclean. Indignant echoes of verse 2, sinner. How does the other group hear this? How does the other group hear these stories? The younger son had, in fact, thrown off the traditions and brought shame upon his father's house. They learned that he had lived a sinful, self indulgent life. They know that he had worked with pigs and is unclean. Shameful, shameful echoes of verse 2. Sinner. Oh, they feel the condemnation. They see themselves in the younger son, but over that they hear the hope. You see, the younger son returned home with nothing of value to pay back the father with. In fact, the sinners listening, they hear that the good father ran out and embraced his son, the wayward son, before the son had even confessed. In verse 20, we're told that the father is compassionate. He embraces and kisses his son and welcomes him. The younger son with nothing to his name represents the sinners and the tax collectors that were surrounding Jesus. As the Pharisees and the tax collectors muttered to themselves those sinners and their lack of worth and they degraded Jesus for having sat with them. Look, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Certainly no one truly of God would have ever done such a thing. And on that point... The Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law, I think that they are right on that point. See, you and I, I think in our own righteousness outside of Christ, we would not consider such sinners worthy of our time. But where you or I might look away, God incarnate shares space. Where you or I might not want to be bothered, God the Son bears the cross so that sinners and tax collectors like you and like me might be received into the goodness of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And those who are with the Father, they rejoice. Look to verse 24 with me. The father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They, the servants of the father, rejoiced because they knew that this, review, this reunion, it actually brought honor to the father. And they knew what being in the father's house meant. They knew what it meant for them. And so the servants celebrated alongside the father because in the father's house there is no famine. There is a fattened calf. In the father's house, no one is exposed to the elements, but instead is given a coat. And there's a roof overhead. Because in the father's house, one is not alone because there is a relationship with the father and all who are with him. The servants celebrated the return of the wayward son because they knew what it was to be under the care of the good father. Of course, the parable of the prodigal son doesn't end there. Remember, there were two groups of people listening. The sinners and the tax collectors. Well, I think by God's grace, they got it. Yeah, there's another group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I think by God's grace, they were about to. Look to verse 25 with me. It says this, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came... Who has devoured your money, your property with property and prostitutes? You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And in this exchange, we see the heart of the older son revealed. He is so embittered by his father's welcoming back of his father's stupid son who wasted the family's wealth and brought shame on their name that he refuses to go into the house where his brother and father are. Instead, he only thinks of himself, his own honor, and he sulks outside. Why hasn't such an honor been paid to me? Haven't I always done the to-do list the way it's been asked? And just as the shepherd went to find the sheep, the woman, her coin, the father goes out in this story, now for a second time, this time to meet the older son, the one who has always shown loyalty and done what was right. He speaks as tenderly to his older son as he did receive again his younger. Son, you are always with me, and all that's mine is yours. But he also refuses to allow the son's complaint to stand and separate him from his younger brother. In other words, he's not just my son, he's your brother. And you should be happy for him and with him. My joy should be your joy. It is fitting. And in this exchange, a great reversal of fortunes are exposed. You see, we see the heart of the older son revealed. We can see in the words of Jesus that the older son's actions seem to have always been rooted in his own self-interest and not out of love for the father. The older son says, I have done all that's been asked of me. And what did I get? Rings? No. Your best robe? No. No, I didn't even get a goat to celebrate with my friends. Yet for this good-for-nothing son of yours, you kill the fattened calf. No, father, I don't want to go into your house. I'm happier out here. The parable ends without giving us an answer to what the older brother will ultimately choose. Will he repent of his own self-interest and go inside to celebrate with his father and resurrected brother, the one who is dead and is now alive again? Or will he dig in his heels and stay outside of his father's house? We don't know, but it's pretty clear what the options for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law listening in are. Friends, The response of our hearts towards those who are saved is a great indicator concerning the state of our hearts. In fact, I believe in this three-in-one triad of parables. It can actually be used as somewhat of a litmus test as as it pertains to our own hearts. it's, It's a scope inside. It looks inside of us. Those whose interests are aligned with God's will join with the angels in celebrating when another sinner repents, because in that repentant sinner, they see their former selves having been lost and then found. Those whose hearts have not been aligned with that of the good father, sadly, will ultimately find themselves outside the father's house, where there is no food and there is no shelter and there is no relationship with the one who seeks and saves the lost. With that, I'd like to suggest you three things from Jesus' teaching this morning that I think should shape our minds the way we think and thereby shape our actions the way we interact. First, we should never forget to see ourselves as one coming from the group of sinners. Yes, Ephesians 4.1 tells us that we have been chosen in Christ before the world began and yet for those of us who are in Christ, there was a time when that was not the case. If you call yourself a Christian, there was a time when you were not. We who are Christians have been sought out and transferred from the kingdom of darkness, where we served ourselves and were slaves to sin, into the kingdom of light. To that of Christ, where we are happily slaves to him. Those who we can rightly classify as sinners, are separated now by nothing more and certainly nothing less than the grace of God through Christ Jesus. And so in them we see ourselves and with humility we praise God all the more. Please hear me when I say this. If you are joyful about the work of God in saving others, know that this is a mark of God's spirit in your life. Joy is a fruit of God's Spirit. And so when you feel the joy of the work of God in the hearts and lives of those around you, know that this is a mark of God's work in your own heart. Second thing is this. Knowing the fate that we have been saved from, the fate of the lost should be of paramount concern to us. You see, unless we had heard the gospel and repented, we would still be among them, those outside the Father's house. And as we know, outside the Father's house, there was famine, there was lawlessness, and there was isolation. So supporting the promotion of the gospel among the lost should be something that naturally flows from our hearts, is a part of our breath. Uh, whether that's participating in the life of the church here, or supporting in the, uh, the, the word of God, going into places where it has not yet taken root, all of these things, should be things that we are for in the most prominent of ways. And this fights ambivalence. It fights against it. In fact, if if someone had saved your life and then you found out that, that their child was ill, had cancer of some kind, your heart would be heavy for them. But if you found that that child had been saved from cancer, your heart would be overjoyed for that parent whose child had been saved. You see, it is a fitting response to be joyous about those who are saved. There is nothing about salvation which is blasé. The third thing is this, that we should let our lives be marked by joy. One commentator says this, he says, Even we who have known the grace of a heavenly father can be stingy about that grace being applied to others. The image of the angry older brother challenges us to have God's heart of compassion towards other sinners. Our compassion towards others is a good indicator of how well we understand our own need for grace. Even in our own interpersonal relationships, you know, we can be stingy in allowing the grace of God to cover over sin because we want them to feel the full consequence of their transgression against us. So let's rejoice in reconciliation And quick to express joy concerning God's reconciling work in others towards himself. Ironically, we actually rob ourselves of joy and we withhold worship from the only one who is actually worthy of it. When we withhold joy concerning the repentance and the forgiveness of others. And so let me say this. With the grace of God in mind, may we be mindful of the forgiveness that we have received in Christ and as did the friends of the shepherd who lost his sheep, and the friends of the woman who had lost her coin, and the father who had lost his son, may we rejoice with the people of God and the angels in heaven when one sinner repents. May we do this to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are keenly aware that our own joy is often muted it is stifled by our own sinful desires or our own desire for glory for ourselves. And so I pray even in the, in the looking at your word today that by your spirit you might soften our hearts towards those who are lost. I pray that you would open our hearts towards those who have received forgiveness and that we might celebrate as your people giving you honor and praise and glory as the only one who is due it work in our hearts both for our good as your people and for the glory of your name we pray in jesus name amen